You're listening to episode 285 with Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler is an eight times New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He has many books that I am sure you've heard of, including Stealing Fire and the Rise of Superman that have been read so many times. Before we get on to this episode, I got two reminders for you. While you're listening to this, if anything sticks out to you as thought-provoking, interesting, take a screenshot, write down what you heard, share it on your Instagram story, your LinkedIn, email, text your mom, do whatever it takes to get that information out there if you found it valuable. Number two, I have a book coming out March 14th called Screw Being Shy. It's all about social anxiety, mental health, transformation. If that piques your interest, please head over to my website or the link in the description below, Mark Metry, and put your name up on my email list and you'll be notified when the book comes out. And without further ado, episode 285 with Stephen Collin. So Stephen, the first question that I always start off and ask my guests is how do you spend your time here on planet Earth? Uh, writing, trying to advance flow science and research, trying to make the world a better place for animals. And then when I'm not doing those things, I'm usually trying to hurl myself down mountains at high speeds. <laughs> nice, nice. That's I love, love that, man. Um, so Stephen, so your previous guest on this podcast, you came on last year, I believe, episode 127. We talked all about sort of, you know, your, your life story, uh, how it is you got to where you're doing. I highly recommend people to check that out. We kind of went deep into flow states from your groundbreaking book with Jamie Wheel, uh, Stealing Fire. Amazing, amazing. Highly recommend people to check it out. And you and Peter Diamandis have now come out with this, you know, newest book on the future and how it's much, much faster than we think. And, you know, personally for me, um, you know, I'm somebody who was born in the late 90s and I kind of, you know, saw technology, always sort of respected it, saw sort of its implications come early on, see a lot of people, even my age, sort of be astounded, be like, you know, holy crap, like, you know, all these things are happening now. And, you know, it's having an in interesting conversation today in terms of people who, you know, uh, maybe understand what's going on, uh, maybe see the long tail of the future, and then people who um, not necessarily are cynical, but maybe necessarily don't believe in it, think that, you know, flying cars or whatever will never happen. And so I just, you know, I read through your book before we hopped on here. I honestly think this is one of the the greatest books that I've read on sort of not just about technology, but how it's really going to impact human behavior and society at scale. And dude, I'm just so glad you're on here. Thanks for having me and thanks for your interest in the book. Yeah, of course. So, Stephen, you know, I want to guess get started here. Um, and, you know, you talk, you sort of open up the book, not necessarily with, you know, the specific technology or the specific kind of tech industry, but you kind of talk about this element, this power of convergence and how it's not necessarily about one specific thing, whether it's blockchain or, or AR or VR. And I'm curious if you want to hop into that first. You know, uh, 
The Future is Fascinating, you think, is the third book in a series for Peter and me. And I think that's the best place to kind of start the discussion because we started with Abundance. And Abundance is a book about how individual lines of technology are now starting to accelerate exponentially. And that's a fancy way of saying they double in power and, well, the cost stays the same on a regular basis, right? The classic example is Moore's Law, right, which is that the and a number of uh, silicon chips on a computer chip double every 18 months while the cost of your, uh, that chip stays the same. And mm. what uh, Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of engineering at Google, who runs their AI department, figured out back in the late 1990s, um, around the time you were being born, was that <laughs> once a technology becomes a digital technology, once you can program it in the ones and zeros of computer code, jumps on the back of Moore's Law and starts accelerating exponentially. So in abundance, we mm. talked about 10 or 12 technologies, computers, robotics, AI, sensors, networks, nanotechnology, material science, et cetera, that are all starting to do this. They're all starting to accelerate exponentially. And some of this is happening incredibly fast. Biotechnology is a great example. Biotechnology is moving so quickly that certain sectors, genomics, for example, it's moving at five times the speed of Moore's law. It's literally doubling mm. in power every four to five months. So Fareed Zakaria said to me fairly recently that as a result of this, you gain five hours of life expectancy today, simply every day you stay alive, simply because of the speed that biotechnology is advancing, which is an insane idea. Um, so what is happening now, though, because this is, this is already happening and we're starting to get a mm. sense of it, right? We can feel it. That's just the warm-up round. That's the old news. The new news is... These formerly independent lines of exponential technology are now starting to converge. They are overlapping and they are doubling in power and size. And what happens with converging exponentials as opposed to individual exponentials is that the scale of disruption gets much bigger. So with exponential technology, what you see in the world is this tends to disrupt products and services, right? But once mm. you get converging exponentials, it starts to take out whole markets and even institutions. And that's hmm. a level of disruption we've not seen before. And here's where it gets really weird. Because of these things, first of all, there's, we're not gonna, I won't go into them unless you want me to, but these okay. converging technologies are unleashing seven additional forces that are also accelerating our acceleration. I'll just give you a simple example so you understand what I'm talking about. One of the things that technology does is it saves us a massive amount of time, right? We used mm -hmm. to spend 54 hours a week doing housework at the turn of the century. Now we spend an hour and a half labor-saving devices. Thank you very much, right? What this mm -hmm. does is it frees up more time for innovation, right? Entrepreneurs, innovators can actually spend more time developing new technologies. And thus, the speed of technology itself starts increasing. You get more time back. It gets fed into innovation. Innovation speeds up. So there's six other forces along these lines. They're accelerating our acceleration. Ray Kurzweil took a look at all of this and said, holy crap, he worked the numbers. We're going to experience 20,000 years of technological change over the next 100 years. So think about that. What, that, what I'm saying is we're going to go birth of agriculture to the Industrial Revolution twice before the end of the century. Even if he's off by a factor of, I don't know, a thousand, right? Like the level of change is impossible to wrap your head around. And what it really means on a much more practical basis, which is the focus of the book, 
is that over the next 10 years, we're going to experience about 100 years of technological change. So if you think back to 1919, think what the world was like, think where it is today, and now think about that level of change over the next 10 years. So that's, mm -hmm. what, that's what converging technologies is unleashing. That is the reason the future is faster yeah. than you think. It's so it's so interesting, and I think uh, you know you guys kind of give a, a real tangible example of this at the beginning of this book with sort of transportation and cars and sort of what Uber is doing with like their version of electronic helicopters and reducing traffic and and LA. I think that would be flying really powerful. Cars, but, flying cars yeah. are here. We open the book. This is this is still the most astounding thing in the world. Um, to me, we opened the book mm. at the second annual Uber Elevate conference. Second annual Uber Elevate, first of all, is devoted to flying cars. Uber wants to make autonomous electric flying taxis, essentially the next ride sharing platform. And mm. the point of the second annual conference is wasn't like first conference was about the cars. The cars are here. There are now a hundred different car companies building flying cars. Billions of dollars haven't been invested. The second conference was about the path to scale. It was literally about bringing in the, the FAA and how do we establish regulations and how do we do this and how do we build skyports in every city that can accommodate mm -hmm. this. And these are happening, it's happening really fast. It's happening, by the way, because of convergence. If you look inside a flying car, you see seven or eight of these exponential technologies all converging to make them possible. That's why it's happening now after we've heard about it for so long. But the other thing is Uber wants pilot projects somewhere between 2025 in LA, in Dallas, in Dubai. So mm. this is, this is, this is coming very, very, very quickly. Um, and it radically changes, you know, a lot of really simple things in our life that we don't really think about flying cars, to qualify as Uber ready, you have to be able to move at 150 miles an hour and kind of cover 300 miles on a tank of gas kind of thing, um, or on a battery charge, excuse me, not a tank of gas. And so that essentially means that like a flying car can take you San Francisco to San Diego, but that starts doing mm. radical, like how big is your school district now? How, what about your local dating pool? All these hmm. really right. like simple things in our lives are going to start to shift. And of course, flying cars, as we point out on the book, it's only the beginning. There are six other transportation technologies that are just as revolutionary that are showing, starting to show up now and are really all going to come into place over the next decade. So the transportation hmm. industry, you got to stop and think about this is an industry that saw depending on how you want to look at it, one to two revolutions in the 20th century, right? There was the car itself and the airplane, and those were our big mm. revolutions, right? Um, we got rockets, but they're not exactly transportation yet. Over the next 10 mm. years, we've got a bunch of new ones. And by the way, the last one on our list, or one of the last ones on our list is rockets, right? Elon Musk mm. is trying to repurpose his the same rockets that he's using to put satellites into, into orbit and to actually get us to Mars, where he wants a human colony by 2030, um, or a human landing by 2030 and a colony by 2050. Um, those same rockets can be used to get you from kind of New York to Dubai in 22 minutes. And the, they're reusable, wow. right? That's the whole point of Elon's, of what he's done is 
they don't blow up on, you know, take off and landing, they land themselves. And so this is actually, you know, a viable form of transportation, interplanetary, not interplanetary, but like on planetary transportation in the next 10 years. That's a very strange thing to start wrapping your head around. It's really so, so strange. And, you know, in the book, you guys go industry by industry, uh, aspect of life by aspect of life, and you really go in depth on how these are all, you know, going to change. And, you know, I'm curious to ask you is like, obviously, all these things right now are are happening from, you know, startups to venture capitalists to varying entrepreneurs to to billionaires. But do you think like the real sort of uh, accelerant, the real unlock to this is going to be um, quantum uh, computing or what's what's your take on maybe like when we'll slowly begin to maybe see this acceleration happen and, and maybe why? Where do I, th- I mean, I, I, quantum is not the first place I'm, I'm going to point to um, mm. in terms of it, but I will tell you, I mean, just because it's, it's incredibly relevant, a um, couple weeks ago, this wasn't true when we were writing the book, but quantum supremacy, mm. which is a big deal in the quantum computing world, it's when you build a quantum computer that's actually more powerful than a classical normal computer, we just hit three weeks ago, oh, and wow. I believe yesterday... Intel announced they've got the first consumer quantum chips for computers, for devices. So this is moving really quickly. But I mean, the example we give in the book is the one that's really mind blowing. And it's mind blowing to me because, you know, around the time that you were being born, I first heard about quantum computing. And it was, you know, I think the first book I read on it might have been David Deutsch's book. I think it was 1992, Mm -hmm. 93, 94, somewhere in there. And besides being super incomprehensible, like I remember at the time being like, just feeling so stupid, really like, how do I wrap my, what are you talking about? Right. Kind of stupid. Um, it was sounded so unbelievably goofy science fiction that like I was a guy who spent my entire career tracking sci-fi ideas as they became sci-fact. And I had near term, long term pie in the sky lists. And I, as a journalist, I would track all these technologies and quantum was way on my, I wasn't even paying attention, right? It was so far in the future, in my opinion. And the story we tell in the book is about Rigetti Computing. And Rigetti Computing is literally an entrepreneurial startup. It's in Berkeley, California, and they have got a quantum computer that is 32 qubits. So it's already online. Anybody can use it. You can go to regettycomputing.com. You can download Forest, which is their user-friendly interface to their quantum world. And anybody can run programs on their quantum computer and like a million point two programs have been run. So like this is already here. It's already being widely used, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's already available to anyone. It's not just this. That's one of the other crazy things about, about this future is because these technologies all are starting to develop user-friendly interfaces, non-experts can play. I told you a story about 1992 where I couldn't even read the, a book on the subject, and now they're, it's, a, it's de-experted. You want to program yeah, a quantum right. computer? You can do this, right? And Intel just made the chips available, so you can, right? So now you're going to be able to do this through your cell phone in a couple of years. It's a crazy, crazy thing, and and you know. By the way, we say quantum computing, it's this crazy science fiction technology, but let's uh, talk a little bit about what, what, it, what it's really good at. It's, it's, in a sense, it's hmm. the low-hanging fruit for quantum computing. 
is drug discovery. It's new materials. So hmm. solar, for example, right? The better solar materials that convert more uh, sunlight into electricity are the kind of thing that quantum is great at. So we're going to start drug discovery medicines. Um, is another thing that quantum is great at. So we're going to hmm. see much, you know, acceleration in those kinds of pipelines, um, very soon. That's so that's that's crazy, and I think another you know big aspect that you guys talked about in the book is this concept of of networks and uh, you know this sort of byproduct of connecting people. And you talk about you know uh, satellites like what what Elon Musk is doing and five G and balloons, and you know the potential implications of that of you know everyone in the entire world you know seven eight billion people being connected to the internet, which I think right now it's something like. I think it's like four billion or something That's like exactly that. Right? Yeah, it's roughly. It's right. I think it's three point eight right now. Right in two thousand and ten, mm. it was one point eight billion online. Um, today, oh, wow. it's about four billion, and over the next five years, it's everybody else. Right, all seven point three mm. plus billion of us. Um, and you know, as you pointed out, there are uh, four different orbital satellite constellations going up over our heads right now to provide ubiquitous 5g right and like mm. when you talk about 5g you just got to talk about the fact that what that means is you can <laughs> download a movie faster than i can say download a movie like that's what 5g means right mm -hmm. google has project loon and um you know in the book we reported that spacex uh is putting up 12,000 satellites, which, you know, was a mind blowing number to report on. Anyways, the launches have already begun. They just reported that they're upping it to 36,000. Um, and Jeez. you know, so it, it, it literally, it's ubiquitous connectivity, uh, for everyone with a lot of power, a lot of bandwidth. And, you know, in abundance, we talked about, about what this means in terms of the rising billion, right? The, we are about to get, I mean, if you want to talk about an innovation influx, there are 4 billion people in the world we haven't heard from yet. We don't know what they right. want. We don't know what they're going to desire. We don't know what ideas they're going to add to the conversation. I want to give you right. another force that we talk about in the book is a force of acceleration, these additional forces that I think is so cool and so relevant here, which is extra genius. And we don't think about this very much. Like we, we know how much an Einstein or a Bohr or a Steve Jobs or an Amelia Earhart, you know, all these figures advance society and culture. But we don't think about the fact that until very recently, right, if you weren't born a certain class, a certain culture, a certain mm -hmm. color, in a certain place, your chances of being recognized for your talents or able to utilize your talents were really, really scant. And Suddenly, mm. right, endless education is available for free online for anybody with a smartphone. We're about about to all get ubiquitous 5G connections. So genius, this incredible force, is about to be tapped into at a level that we've never seen before. Another force for accelerating our acceleration and one of the things that ubiquitous networks gives us. Really cool. Yeah, it's it's honestly it's insane. And I was I was watching um uh, Peter Diamandis, he did a talk on this and he was, you know, talking about, you know, these exact implications of what happens when, you know, you connect 8 billion people. And it's like, you know, if you think, 
you know, the amount of, you know, whether it's uh, startups or potential geniuses or people that have varying problems and ideas and solutions to solve them. And you, you know, double that and it's everyone in the world. That's insane. And it's also insane on the level of, you know, institutions and, and politics and how, um, you know, money works in our economy. It's really like the implications. I'm, I don't really know. (laughs) Um, and I think that's, that's a part of the future, I guess, as part of it is, you know, not necessarily knowing, um, a hundred percent. Um, but, you know, reading, reading the book too, you know, one thing that really, um, kind of stopped me dead in my tracks is AI. And I think a lot of people hear AI and, you know, a low level of it, you know, I guess is being used today. Um, but, you know, you guys give an example of, I think it's like a, like your potential avatar in 2028 of what the implications of, you know, having AI all the way until it's like, you know, you get home and your mood is off. And it's, it's just really crazy. I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you begin to talk about the conversation of sort of AI? Yeah. So, so the way, I like to think about it as sort of everybody's best version right now, because we've all seen Iron Man, uh, Mm -hmm. right, is Jarvis. Like that, okay, so that's a crazy powerful AI, right? What's so cool about Jarvis? Well, Jarvis has some skills, right? Tony Stark can talk to Jarvis in natural language, and Jarvis understands his jokes and understands nuance and subtlety, et cetera, et cetera. And he can collaborate with Jarvis. There's all kinds of interfaces that allow him to get all kinds of information, but he tells Jarvis to do things, to build him things, and that happens, right? So those are that's that's our Jarvis version, right? So you gotta ask yourself what like what about the various things that go into a Jarvis? And you know, we know we've got AI, it's invading everywhere. It's, you know, it's in yeah. our operating rooms. It's already better at producing like sudden death from cardiac and respiratory failure. Facebook is using AI to spot suicidal tendencies in users. The DOD hmm. has an AI shrink named Ellie um, to spot uh, signs of depression and PTSD in soldiers to prevent soldiers' suicide. We're seeing AI creep into finance and insurance and entertainment and healthcare. We saw an AI run for mayor of a province of Japan in 2018. Didn't win, but came really close. Um, We're seeing AIs make movies. We're seeing AIs write books. Um, The story I like to tell, and this is, I'm going to get back to Jarvis through this. So one of the cool mm. things about Jarvis is, is Jarvis's sort of natural language abilities, right? You can just sort of talk to Jarvis and Jarvis gets you and can offer useful advice. So a bunch of years ago, Microsoft created an AI chatbot named Chow Ice and they released Chow Ice in China and Chow Ice, other chatbots are optimized as you probably know for task efficiency, right? How can I help solve your problem? They want to solve your problem as fast as possible kind of thing, Right. They optimized Chow Ice for conversation. So they optimized this chatbot to keep the conversation going. So they trained him up in emotional affective computing and, and nuance and things like that a little bit, but also multiple conversations because humans will have like 10, 15 conversations at once and jump back and forth. So Chow Ice can hold like 15 conversations in her head at once. And they released Chow Ice in China, 30 million conversations with 100 million humans later. Right, 20 million humans, 20 million registered users are having like 60 chats a month with her. And so they released a version in uh, English uh, on Twitter known as 
Bo. I think they shut Bo down. Um, yeah. I had a conversation with Bo, and like you have to understand that what's happening with Chow Ice is people are getting online after midnight and having like deeply emotional conversations with Chow Ice and asking for <laughs> advice. And so I was like, okay, I got to see what this is like. So I typed in, you know, my wife is mad at me into the chat box just to see. What I got back is, are you more, are you focused more on what tears things apart or holds them together? So a, right. Like, but here, here's something funnier, just as a side note, there's a couple somewhere, right. That stayed together because Chow Ice gave them advice, right. With just like run the odds. Right. And that there's that couple somewhere has had a kid because Chow Ice kept them together. So we've got somewhere in the world, arguably, the first AI like spawn baby, um, which I think is just hysterical. But the real point is this is the kind of natural language conversational abilities that AI are starting to get. So you're starting to be able to talk to AIs in, in kind of really natural language and get answers, right? And we see some of this in, you know, in our, in our living rooms with Alexa and, you know, techno- and, and mm. Siri and technologies like that, but it's really going leaps and bounds. And we're, so that level of interface is getting there. The same thing is the level of decision-making, right? Like if you look at, at the games that AI can now play, right? It took AlphaGo Zero, which was Google's kind of super hyper Go program. It's like, and Go mm. is chess for superheroes, right? And it took that program, that AI, 40 days to become the best Go player on earth, teaching itself Hmm. Go from the internet, right? Got a few rules and then was unleashed and it would use reinforcement learning and 40 days to become the best Go player on earth kind of stuff. So we're getting closer and closer to all the different components that would go together to make a Jarvis and where this leads, as you pointed out. And this is the thing Peter loves talking about it. And I really want to credit him with the idea because I think he's right. And, um, is that we're all going to have personal AIs in the future. And, you know, Mm. it's going to start because it'll be Alexa, right? And it'll get a little more personalized. So your, you know, your, your, your refrigerator is going to have an AI and it's going to be able to tell you when you're running out of carrots, right? And that is going to go to your personal AI who's going to order more carrots from the store. And then Amazon drone delivery is going to bring them to your front door and drop them in that little delivery box they're planning on putting there. And, you know, the only time you're going to notice that you're out of carrots is when you're moving them from the box into the kitchen. Though, you know, five years from now, you probably got a robo butler moving them from the box to the kitchen for you. So you're not even going to notice. And this is just like a simple example of shopping for vegetables. I mean, yeah, I mean, that that is a simple example of shopping for vegetables. But, you know, you guys, you guys even play this out in later in your book. And, you know, you talk about somebody, um, you know, being in a fight with their wife and they come home and the AI detects they're in a bad mood and automatically knows slowly what can yeah, like so, lead them down. Yeah. So yeah. it's, so you, the example we give is you come home in a bad mood and you've had a long day, you got in a fight with your wife and early in the morning and you fought with your brother during the day and you, you're, you're pissed off and your AI notices and you know, you sit down to watch 10 minutes of TV before you go off to your, drinks and dinner with your wife who you're fighting with and your AI has custom selected a bunch of like funny movies that it's noticed you watch over the years because it's monitoring entertainment and we're going to interface it for it. And your AI really knows you better than you know 
yourself. And I get to kind of go into what's going on here and the technology underneath it. But there's affective computing is the computing of, of human emotion. And AIs are getting really, really good at detecting human emotion. And in things like watching a movie, right, they not only are detecting what you're feeling, they know what you're looking at. They know what in the scene is making you laugh because they can track eye gaze, vocal tone and all that stuff. So they're in a sense, they're learning you and your tips and tendencies better than you know yourself and will actually mm. be able to customize something that can change your mood. And, you know, we're seeing this stuff is already here, by the way, like, you know, we give examples yeah. in the book of affective computing companies that are already working with, you know, television advertisements to make them more effective and things like this. And we're seeing one of the things we talk about in, in, in the book is autonomous uh, cars, right, that are rolling out on our streets mm. starting this year. And one of the things most people don't realize is that they know that on the top of the car, there's that LIDAR sensor, right? What they don't realize probably is that LIDAR detector is gathering 1.3 million data points a second down to a single photon level and including human emotion because that autonomous taxi needs to know if the pedestrian that's 100 yards down the road is super anxious and about to dart between cars to cross the street or maybe really tired and not paying attention or really calm and is going to chill and wait for the autonomous taxi to drive by. So that is the level of sense detection and affective computing that's being built into our autonomous cars that are arriving this year. And, and you know, for me personally, when you say all that and, and, you know, when people read the book and, you know, you guys talk about other forces like, you know, demonetization and, you know, a lot of the problems that we have today being solved, you know, I can't help but think like, what does that put, you know, what does that make somebody's problems in the future be? Uh, if they're not, you know, if they've already sort of been solved, where does that put somebody's? Um, I, I don't. You know, state I, so of mind? I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't think technology no. is going to solve all our problems at all. In fact, I think Peter and I, what we say and what we like to say is that is that the, the, this technology is so powerful that what it does is it gives us the ability to solve our grand global challenges, poverty, energy, you know, these really big, intractable. Mm-hmm complex so-called wicked problems right we really have leverage against them but it's not automatic right and and, and i think peter and i both mm-hmm. would, would agree that it's sort of abundance or bust either we do this or we have catastrophic problems that said mm-hmm. it's still going to require the largest cooperative effort in history i believe and he i think peter does too and it's not just people kind of at you know working together to solve these problems with this technology is people at their best. So I think my other work on flow comes into play here. I think you need Mm. people in flow, the state of peak performance, which also heightens collaboration, cooperation, working together to solve these problems. That's to me, sort of, if you want to tie all this together uh, in, you know, for me in terms of, you know, the work I do, that's one of the big overlaps to me. And, you know, Mm. I, I came into all this work because I cared deeply about the environment and about animals. And I was trying to protect the environment and protect biodiversity. And I came to start to realize that, you know, technology and cooperation gave us the most leverage. Definitely. And I, I definitely want to, I want to hear a little bit more on how flow will kind of, you know, go in tandem with this. Um, but you guys, you know, you also talk a part of the book about like the, uh, the five great migrations and climate is one of them. Yep. It's so yeah, let me put that in a little context and let's drill down into yeah. this because it's crazy, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the book, the whole book, as you pointed out, 
it's about what happens over the next 10 years. And we go through the 11 largest industries on earth, right? Um, and, you know, here's what happens in real estate. Here's what happens in finance. Here's what happens in transportation, et cetera. Advertising, education, energy. I'll keep going. Um, but then we say, okay, let's pull back for the big view. What's happening over the next 100 years? And we examine five great migrations. And, and one of the reasons we look at migration is if you're looking at earth-shaping, world-changing forces in history, migration is right at the top of the list. Like global cat catastrophe, a meteor impacts the earth, um, and mass migration. These are the largest drivers of shifts in culture. And more interestingly, from our perspective, this is not as well known, but migration is a phenomenal driver of innovation. It massively accelerates innovation. And so when you see mass migration, you see this already accelerated future start to accelerate even more. So of the five great migrations we look at, we start with the obvious one, which is climate change migration. And mm. you gotta, now this is a very unusual mass migration, like forced mass migration, because we're the ones doing the forcing, right? This is, this is mm. voluntary, but you gotta, you got it. So, so here's, here's what you need to know. The largest forced mass migration in history, most people would argue was the division of India and Pakistan. And mm. it was about, it uprooted about 18 million people, 8 million died. So that's what happens Jeez. when you uproot 8 million people. Climate change back in the 1990, uh, the UN said, hey, if this happens, it's going to be tens of millions of people on the move. Holy crap. Then in 1993, a guy from Oxford named Norman Myers came along and said something totally crazy. Wait a minute, you're wrong. It's not tens of millions. It's going to be 200 million people by 2050. And this ignited like a mass storm of disagreement and protest and whatever, and it's gone back and forth. The best data on the question, I believe, was done by a group known as Climate Central, and it's top scientists and top journalists just wanting to get the truth of climate change out. And they, they created a whole bunch of climate maps. If one degree of warming happens, this is what the Earth looks like. If two degrees, blah, blah. Two degrees warming, which is you know, sort of best case scenario right now, 1.5 to 2 degrees warming, it's still going to displace 130 million people. Four degrees warming, which is literally like business as usual today. If we don't, if nothing changes, it's 470 to 760 million people. In the U.S. alone, it's 20 million people displaced. Whole cities, Hong Kong, London, Calcutta, Shanghai, Rio. The fastest way from point A to point B is swimming. Um, so it is a, you know, it's a migration that's, you know, on the low end at 130 million people, it's still six times bigger than the biggest thing we've ever seen before. And that's just mm. one of the migrations we're looking at. Yeah. That's the, that's so profound. I, it's going to be interesting for sure. And, you know, I want to, I want to talk about your migration of, you know, you guys talk about like people entering into virtual worlds um, and in like into the Borg too. Let's talk about virtual worlds. Cause it's easier. It's the easiest of the two to explain. Flow plays mm. a role in it. That's kind of neat. And I think of mm. the things that people are not paying attention to, this is a, this is in my, I, you know, I'm just one guy with one opinion, but this is my, this is one of the biggest ones. And the idea here is really simple and it, it's helpful to start with flow. 
So flow is the mm. state of optimal performance. And we love it. We love being in flow. In mm. studies, flow is our favorite experience on earth. It's underpinned by five of the most powerful reward chemicals, big pleasure chemicals. And they're really pleasurable, right? You get endorphins in flow. The most There's 20 different endorphins in the brain. The most common one is 100 times more potent than medical morphine. So really big pleasure drugs, right? Mm. Flow is the only time you get all five at once. So what the hell does this have to do with virtual reality? Okay. So, oh, one more thing I want to tell you about flow that's a little more important. Mm. Not only is it the most pleasurable state on earth, it's also the most meaningful. So flow directly correlates to overall life satisfaction, well-being, and meaning. And so the people who score off the charts for any of those categories are the people with the most flow in their lives. Why is this important? Well, video games are pretty good at producing flow. It's one of the reasons video games are so mm. addictive. But the flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. Video games, there's about 22 of those triggers. Video games are pretty good at getting at like three or four of them. Virtual reality, on the other hand, is really good at getting at all of them. So this mm. means that there's going to come a point very soon where we're going to be able to create virtual environments that are as pleasurable and as meaningful as real world environments. Now, add on to this a handful of things. Add on to this the fact that every time a technology goes exponential, like virtual reality is now going, we find an mm -hmm. internet-sized opportunity sitting inside of it. And we know there's one in virtual reality. Why? Because back in 2006, um, we saw the very first uh, millionaire to make their million dollars entirely in virtual worlds. There's a woman selling costumes and interior design and house designs, I believe, inside of Second Life. Her name was Anshi Young. And hmm. so we already know there's economic opportunity inside of virtual reality. And hmm. I have a feeling, and this is our point, is that AI and robotics together are going to take a lot of jobs, for sure. There's no way around it. It's going to happen. Um, and we're going to see a lot of needs for worker retraining and we're going to see a lot of people changing jobs in the very near future as a result of this. And one place those opportunities are going to be is in virtual reality. There's going to be millions of opportunities inside of VR, just like there was millions of opportunities inside of the internet, right? Inside of mm. social media. That's what happens whenever a technology goes exponential apps show up, right? So there's a billion of them on mm. the app store. This is what happens. So, You've got experiences that are more pleasurable and meaningful than regular reality, reliably, and it turns out there's economic opportunity inside of virtual reality. There's a couple of other drivers, education, uh, sex. These are basic human drivers or human needs. Mm. All these opportunities are lining up inside of VR. So one of the things we start believing is going to happen is people are going to just check out a regular reality and check into the matrix and stay. Yeah. Right. And I mean, by the way, don't think this is already not happening. Right. 321 right. million Americans currently spend 11 hours a day online. Jeez. Right. That's where we are today with just like online being like little dopamine reward loops. That's one neural chemical out of five reward chemicals that are coming at us mm. in VR. Yeah. Trust me, as someone who has a VR machine, I totally get this. Um but, you know, Stephen, one of the whenever I talk about sort of this bigger conversation of the future with someone, um, there's always that there's always that question of 
like maybe the the transition and and what i'm talking about is um you know people talking about automation people talking about job loss people talking about um you know whether it, i think it's 30 40 percent of people's jobs being potentially lost in like over the next couple of decades to eventually much higher i'm curious what are your thoughts on on that in terms of unemployment people um sort of losing quote unquote their jobs whether they're truck drivers or retail workers it's gonna happen right like autonomous trucks are coming and they're coming fast and we are already seeing um amazon go right like cashierless shopping yeah. these stores are already here amazon's rolling out 300 of them this year and you know there's going to be always going to be what i like to call craft retail throwback stores where there are real live humans to help you but <laughs> when it comes to um gas stations and convenience stores and grocery stores as we're already starting to see cashiers are going to go away right so these things are going to happen and they're going to happen fairly quickly just like shelf stocking robots are replacing real human workers in warehouses already these transitions are coming there's going to be more of them but i want to go back to what i just said because i think it's really true we mm -hmm. every time we see a technology go exponential we see an internet sized opportunity inside and for sure, more wealth is going to be created in the next 10 years than has over the past century because of all this stuff. So there's tremendous amounts of opportunity. And here's, um, here's another flow tie. And this is actually ties directly into work we're doing at the Flow Research Collective because we're actually on this problem. So one of the things we know about flow is that it accelerates learning. Um, in studies mm -hmm. run by the Department of Defense, for example, soldiers in flow learned about 230 times faster than normal. Different studies, they were training novice marksmen up to the expert level in 50% less time. So what we are working on at the Flow Research Collective is a high flow virtual reality learning environment specifically aimed at worker retraining. Mm -hmm. um, and, and by the way, like you want to talk about converging technologies to do this. We are having to build a biophysical based flow detector so that they can kind of mm -hmm. read different signals and say, are you in flow? Or are you not in flow? That has mm -hmm. been absolute science fiction technology since I've been in this field 30 years ago, right? Just totally crazy. And now it's literally like a year, two years, three years away. Um, and uh, the VR software that fits on top of it is not much farther out. So yes, this stuff is coming. Mm -hmm our ability to adapt very quickly to it is also increasing. And, hmm. you, you know, I think you need to know it, like, you know, depending on what industry you're in, you got to know what's coming. That was the whole, one of the main reasons Peter and I wrote this book, the opportunities are immense, but if you can't get out in front of them, you have problems. Right. And we have a, hmm. we have a hard time seeing into the future. The human brain is not built for hmm. it. Right. We have a local and linear brain living in a global and exponential world. And we literally can't process information that speed or that scale, unless we're in flow, by the way, which is why I think flow matters so much in this conversation as well. Mm. It is the only time we can actually process information at speed and at scale. So it's, it, is, it is sort of a phenomenal way for us, you know, at a human performance simple, like what can I do to, today to prepare? Well, you can, you know, read books like The Future is Faster Than You Think and a lot of other books and just figure out where mm. these where these technologies are going and simultaneously train yourself up in flow. We literally, when mm. we're in the state, it surrounds our information processing machinery. We take in more information per second. We 
pay more attention to that information. We find faster connections between that information and older ideas where we can act on it more quickly on the back end, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it surrounds that process and massively amplifies it. So it gives us some leverage in an exponential world. Hmm. Honestly, I never thought about it like that. Uh, combining flow VR for for retrainment to get people to learn new things that maybe necessarily wouldn't. That's really profound. Um, so people can, you know, definitely check out the book. The future is faster than you think. I believe it comes out January twenty eighth. Um, but is there anything maybe specific, uh, Stephen, that you would want people to uh, check out uh, right now? Well, first of all, I mean, the first thing is if the book sounds interesting to you. Go to futurefasterbook.com. We are running uh, a, a just a, a super cool pre-order campaign with lots of cool bonuses uh, along the way. Um, so that um, that's definitely something you want to check out. Um, and you know, if you if, if anything I said is vaguely interesting, um, stephencotler.com mm. is phenomenal. If you're interested in flow training of any kind, flowresearchcollective.com. Definitely. Definitely recommend it. We'll leave the links down below in the description. Stephen, last but not least, uh, I always have my guests leave the audience with some sort of uh, self-inquisitive question, a question that somebody can can ask themselves if, if one comes to mind. I always think about it the same way, right? And I want to – I got back into it. I'm sorry. I got to blab for another 30 <laughs> seconds before I can ask my question. No so what's useful to know is what flow does for performance which is, for example, productivity can go up 500%. Learning, as we talked about, goes up 230%. Creativity, innovation, spike 500 to 700%. Collaboration, cooperation, et cetera. All the technologies I've been talking about have user-friendly interfaces. So you put these things together and you've got to ask yourself, well, what kind of challenges would I go after in my own life if I had access to the most potent technology in the history of the world, and if I had the ability to change performance so that I could be 500% more productive or 400% more creative or cut learning times in half. And that's exactly right. What all the tools and techniques we've been talking about today provide, but you know, what you do with this information is entirely up to you. And that's the question. Mm -hmm. Very profound. I've got to ponder that one myself. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the Humans 2.0 podcast. This was a real treat talking about the future. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening. This has been your host, Mark Metric. Damn, you made it till the end of the podcast. That's really rare in the age of digital distraction. This really means the world to me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to hop on over to my website, Mark Metry, or message me on social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. My name is Mark Metry, M-A-R-K-M-E-T-R-Y. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you learned in this episode, and I'll be sure to get in touch with you. And if you really, really love the podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left me a review. It helps way more than you know. Let's get this Humans 2.0 grassroots movement going. Woo! Get out there and do something impactful today.